Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks so much for tuning in as we continue our conversation with Baker Tilly's Paul Greilich and Tony Allman on construction fraud. Today, Paul and Tony talk about what happens once fraud has been detected and the steps the companies can take to rectify an incident and ensure that they are protected. If you missed part one last week, which covered how to detect construction fraud, we'll link to that episode in the show notes and on the Trekwire blog over at recouncil.com. Please subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on most of the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, the whole nine. You can also follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on everything we've got going on. If you like what you hear on today's show and you've got an idea for a future topic or guest, please email me at bsanantonio at recouncil.com. You can also reach out to Kelsey Holmes at kholmes at recouncil.com. We will link to both of those emails in the show notes and on the Trekwire blog again over at recouncil.com. Before we get to Paul and Tony, I'd just like to take a moment and wish everyone out there a happy holiday season, as well as a very happy, healthy, and safe new year. I appreciate you tuning in and being with us as the year and decade winds down. So with that, back to Paul and Tony right here on TrackCast. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Paul. Look forward to talking with you again about construction fraud. All right. Well, let's get right down to it. How can people prevent and detect fraud? Well, prevention is the most important component here, and it begins with a good construction contract. Uh, A good contract should should be uh, precise. It should not be full of ambiguous terms, Uh, and it should be fair. It should not be one-sided. Uh, favoring either the, the contractor or the owner uh, in any any one lopsided kind of event. Uh, furthermore, it, um, it needs to allow for the contractor to make a fair profit. Uh, it's not appropriate to squeeze every dollar out of the contract, uh, which is why we always say it should be a fair contract that treats both parties equally. Okay. So so can you give me some examples there? What, what do we mean by fair contract well there are a number of things let's let's begin with what we talk about ambiguity in a contract and ambiguity it it is very unfair because it creates um, undefined terms in a contract so here's an example a phrase that says uh, customary to the industry or a phrase that says we will treat this cost in the same manner that we treat it with the rest of our customers. Well, that really doesn't mean anything. You can cheat all of your customers, and now you've got a contract that says that you're allowed to do that. That's not fair. Uh, So what we want to see uh, are very specific terms that would say, uh, we are going to bill our customer uh, at cost, and cost will be represented by actual invoices from subcontractors, suppliers, and vendors. Uh, We would want it to be very specific. And that specificity then not only defines what is cost, but it also defines how we're going to demonstrate that that cost is valid. 
uh, other kinds of uh, fairness in a contract. We want to see that different kinds of billing rates, whether it's labor billing rates, equipment billing rates, uh, unit charges, we want them to be defined in the contract. Uh, they shouldn't be left open to interpretation. Uh, furthermore, within that contract, we would want to see a list of the employees that are part of the construction team and that the owner reserves the right to reject uh, any substitutions to that construction team. Uh, a very thorough due diligence process was put in place with the, during the selection of that contractor, uh, and that included the interview of the construction team, uh, their qualifications, and, and how they were going to help the owner deliver the best possible project. So the owner one should really reserve the right to approve any personnel substitutions. We always want to ensure that um, pricing is well-defined. It shouldn't be left to interpretation. Okay. So you mentioned team. You mentioned team, the construction team, the owner's team. You know, some owners, I mean, if you're a developer, it's one thing. But if you're a manufacturing distribution company uh, and you're putting a team together to build a new plant, um, who should be on that team and what types of things should owners consider? Well, the first thing they have to ask is, do they have the experience for a project of this magnitude? Uh, a once in a career or a once in a 10 year project uh, begs a number of different questions. Not only do you have the experience to manage this project, but do you have the time? Uh, the executive team is probably already very busy with their full-time jobs. Furthermore, construction in itself is, is a relatively unique area. Uh, the terms are unique. Uh, the, the kinds of decisions that have to be made ha have significant financial impact. Uh, the kind of analysis that needs to take place, whether it's a change order, uh, or, or a decision about a subcontractor. Um, all, all of these things are going to be unique to the project. And, and unless that project, that owner's project team has experience with these decisions, uh, they may find themselves uh, sometimes with an inability to make decisions, which can be very expensive uh, because it will delay the project. Uh, or they may find themselves making bad decisions which can be equally or more expensive, resulting sometimes in work that has to be redone. So owners that are finding themselves in the new construction situation where it hasn't been done in a long time, they really should be looking to outside resources to augment their team with construction professionals. Uh, we regularly recommend that an owner's representative be brought on by the owner. Someone that is contracted by the owner uh, to, to represent their interest during the course of construction. It's a construction professional that understands budget management, forecasting, schedule management. Uh, they, they have their finger on the pulse of the industry so that they can challenge uh, and collaborate with the contractor to make good decisions week in and week out. Furthermore, uh, 
owners should be engaging with legal professionals that are construction experts, uh, attorneys that are generalists, attorneys that are litigation specialists. <clears throat> Excuse me, they may not be construction professionals. Legal counsel that thoroughly understands the legal contracting process, understands the terms of the construction industry. They know the difference between a design bid build arrangement and a design build arrangement and who owns the risk and how is risk being shifted. And I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't say something about making sure that you bring in some construction financial risk professionals, whether it's a, a construction monitor or a construction auditor, someone that can look at those construction costs and counsel the owner that the costs that they are incurring are actually compliant with the contract and should be paid on a timely basis. Would you agree that sometimes we're not really talking about fraud here, but just keeping honest people honest? And, and, I mean, we're talking about hiring professionals here. Professionals cost money. How do we, how should we understand the, the cost versus the benefit? Uh, there are a number of reports that have been written that talk about the statistics, but let's, let me share a few of them with you today. Uh, number one is construction invoicing runs at approximately a 70%, that's a 70 70% arithmetic error rate. So at a minimum, there should be someone that's looking at your invoicing to make sure that the arithmetic is correct. We have statistics that show using construction professionals uh, will typically save an owner anywhere from three to 10 times their cost. Um, the construction audit uh, frequently will save an owner in itself three to five times uh, the investment that they make. But these returns either come not only through prevention, which is somewhat, sometimes difficult to demonstrate value, uh, but also in the term of recovery. Uh, and recoveries are those areas where your risk management professional has identified an overcharge situation uh, and has documented it appropriately so that it can be recovered by the by the owner from the contractor. Um, what we're what we're looking at is creating that situation where there are good controls uh, and it discourages bad behavior. And when you can discourage bad behavior, you have a better project. So I'm an owner. I'd like to be involved. Um, you know, professionals are telling me uh, maybe I should walk the uh, construction site, ask questions. But, you know, I'm an accountant. I'm a finance person. I understand those things. Uh, does it benefit me to, to walk a construction site? Absolutely. Um, the first thing that you should remember is the people at the construction site don't realize your knowledge limitations. Just because you haven't had the experience yet um, is an unknown to the people at the job site. So the fact that you're there walking around is already going to have a preventive impact. 
uh, it's going to encourage those that are on the job site to make sure that they're doing their job. Uh, additionally, while we may not be able to uh, identify the quality of the steel that's going into the building because we're not steel experts, um, we do know when people aren't working. If we see a cluster of people that are standing around the coffee pot not doing any work and it's not the scheduled break time at the job site, it does raise the questions like, well, what are you folks doing? Uh, are, are you discussing a project or a problem that are, that's here at the project? Or, or is this break time? Or did you run out of work to do? Why are you all standing around chatting away here this afternoon? And that doesn't take an engineer to identify. The more you walk a site, the more you're going to learn. So you may not know as much walking the site the first time, but when you walk the site with a construction professional, every time you do it, you're going to learn a little bit more. So by the time you've walked the site your fourth or fifth time, you become a, a, a much more tuned person to looking for problems. Uh, why is a particular area covered up? Um, is it being protected or are they trying to hide something? And these questions will occur to you the more often you walk a site. Well, they say, Nith, don't take anything for granted. But, you know, what more can owners do um, to protect themselves? Well, for one, sitting down with your contractor and, and having them outline for you what, the, what is their control environment? How do they prevent material theft? How are they preventing uh, a staffing shortage? What are their resources and their relationships in the community to bring the best materials and the best people to your project? Uh, they should be able to explain this to you, and a contractor that cannot explain how they're going to do that uh, should be a red flag to you that perhaps um, they aren't your best construction partner. And keep in mind, this is a partnership. Uh, the contractor is not the evil empire here. Contractors work really hard to produce the best possible buildings that they can produce. Trade and craft personnel take a lot of pride in the work that they do. Um, they just need to be given the opportunity to, to demonstrate their capabilities. And, and I think uh, a good owner can help make that happen by discussing exactly those expectations with the contractor during the contractor selection process. And then even after the contractor has been selected, uh, sitting in the plan of the week meetings and asking about personnel management, uh, materials management. Uh, if, we, if, if, if we see that there's going to be a, a major storm that's in the forecast, what are we going to do to protect the site from uh, any kinds of problems? Uh, these kinds of questions are, are going to help you have a more successful project to mitigate risk, as well as fraud. Because when things go wrong, when materials don't show up, well, that, that's a door opener to do material substitution. If you can't get the right personnel to the project, this is, this is a door opener to, to quality issues and fraudulent delivery or an inability to deliver and trying to cover it up. Um, so, so having these discussions up front really do become, become preventive measures. The old adage, trust but verify, I'm sure applies here. Um, how do owners verify? What's acceptable documentation on a change order? Or 
something that, that was not anticipated. Um, as we close this this part of it out, uh, what would you say? How, how can owners trust but verify? They should always be able to have uh, the copies of the actual invoices that support the costs that have been passed through to them. Uh, secondly, regarding change orders, they should always be getting a detailed breakdown that defines how many labor hours are going into the change order, what's the labor rate that's being used for the change order, what is the overhead and profit markup that's going into the change order, um, how much time should it take to put, put into that change order, uh, and does this change order affect the construction schedule? If, if executing this on a timely basis does not change your go-live date, if it doesn't require you to authorize the use of overtime, those are all the kinds of documentation you should expect to see in a good change order so that an owner can make an anal do an analysis and make an educated decision. I think that's pretty good uh, summary of uh, how to prevent and detect fraud. I want to switch gears here just a little bit. Um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes fraud does occur. And oftentimes we hear fraud isn't prosecuted. Why is that? to have uh, the, the community discover that they were the victim of fraud. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a pleasant event. And, and quite frankly, they don't want to show up on, on the evening news as the, the local developer that failed to prevent what might have happened. This, this reflects poorly on not only the, the owner, but it reflects poorly on the contractor. Were, were, were the project controls inadequate? Uh, obviously, they, they failed at some point. And is this a control failure? Is this a personnel failure? All, all of these things lead to what, what is potentially a, an embarrassing situation. Um, and then sometimes what, what you have is a lack of actionable evidence for conviction. Uh, and in those situations, it is more advantageous to uh, negotiate a settlement than it is to try and pursue prosecution. Major fraud events do reflect poorly on owners to the investment community. I've heard a few of those stories, um, and it can sometimes take years to repair their reputations. Um, so what should go into the prosecute, don't prosecute decision? I think most organizations, whether it's against the fraud, could be against the contractor or an owner. Uh, so, so the owner is not the only party at risk here. In either case, there's a feeling of violation when it happens and perhaps a tendency to want to execute some revenge uh, and, and get back at the perpetrator. But once you get past that feeling, you really need to understand, well, what are the consequences how is this going to impact my reputation with investors? How is this going to impact uh, my integrity with my banker? Maybe maybe you're a not-for-profit philanthropy is an important part of your capital raise process. Uh, are, are, are your donors going to be questioning uh, your ability to properly manage 
your construction projects and manage their capital their, their capital donations to your program. Uh, are you going to have major donors now sitting at your doorstep going, I'd really like you to show me exactly what I got for my contribution. Where did that money go? Uh, these are things that, that most organizations try to avoid. They want to they maintain their integrity uh, and not put their capital pipeline at risk. Right. Lastly, uh, not all fraud is purely driven uh, by, by capitalistic tendencies. Sometimes fraud is very situational. Uh, maybe it's a longtime trusted employee that has gotten themselves in some kind of financial problem, and the only way they could see a way out was to defraud the company. Um, and, and in fact, probably what would have happened is if they would have approached the owners, whether it was the owner of the construction company or, or the owner of the construction project itself, if, if, if that person who was in such desperate need of help had approached the decision makers and explain their situation. Chances are pretty good if for a lot for a valued employee that they would have worked something out. Uh, so, so it's important to understand. Well, do you really want to prosecute this long valued long term employee? Do you really want to send them to jail? Uh, because you may be finding that you've just orphaned three kids that are now going to be homeless and without a parent. And there's the, the cold logical side of us that would say, well, the person that perpetrated the fraud knew that that was part of the risk of doing what they did. However, most of us have pretty strong ethics and morals and might have a difficult time turning three kids out into the cold in the middle of winter. Makes sense. The people side, always the toughest. So if you're not going to pursue prosecution, what are some of the alternatives? Well, I think the most popular one that's out there is an out-of-court financial settlement. Uh, putting together a program with, with, uh, with, with between the victim and, and, and the person that defrauded them or the company that defrauded them, uh, some kind of financial settlement. Uh, it might happen. It may take years for that settlement to have to be before it's satisfied. Uh, but the fact is that that's the most popular approach. Uh, and if an owner or a contractor can recover most of what they lost, uh, that goes a long way to satisfying the problem. Uh, okay. To escalate it to one level up, um, it's certainly possible then to pursue a civil settlement in court um, where, where the court then may get involved in the collection of proceeds in order to satisfy the settlement. Uh, and then lastly, you know, Paul, in our world, you know, our, we all value our, our, our CPA licenses. Uh, we've worked hard to get them, and they're very important to us. Uh, if a CPA is involved, perhaps the revocation of their professional license uh, is part of that settlement. Uh, which would which would then also prevent that person from getting involved uh, in this kind of situation again, or, or perhaps it's a contractor that's going to lose their license uh, and prevent them from being able to provide services as an electrician or a plumber. Makes sense. So now you pull that person, you pull them out of the service pool so that the, you can prevent them from perpetrating fraud on the next victim. Good. Thank you, Tony. That was great.
I'd like to extend a big, big thank you once again to Paul Greilich and Tony Allman of Baker Tilly for their two-part series on construction fraud. Remember to subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts and follow the Real Estate Council on social media. From all of us here at Trek, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a very happy, healthy, and safe new year. We will see you in 2020. Once again, I am Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.